Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Those are the first three verses and the last two verses of Psalm 140, which along with Psalm 142 are the psalms appointed for today. Friday, August the 20th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the life of David in 2 Samuel 19, 24 to 43, the life of Paul in Acts 24, verse 24 through chapter 25, verse 12, and in the gospel, we're in Mark 12, 35 to 44. Again, lots to cover today. The, especially in the Second Samuel and the Acts readings. Um, again, the, the, the theme continues to be sort of uh, why is a serpent innocent as doves? Um, and, and so we see here in, in the Second Samuel passage, remember David's coming back to the land, having defeated Absalom in battle, and he's now coming back in Mephibosheth, who was uh, Jonathan, his friend Saul's son's son, comes down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. I mean, he's a genuine guy. He he genuinely cared about David. He genuinely cared that David was the king. David had taken care of Mephibosheth, but, but Mephibosheth, by not taking care of himself during this period of time, is showing himself to be in mourning for David because of what's going on here. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and David said, why didn't you go down with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth says, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. Remember, his servant Ziba is the one who told David as David was leaving the city that Mephibosheth was staying behind in order that he might be declared the king because he was the rightful heir of Saul. So he says, your, my servant, Ziba, deceived me. For your servant said to him, I'll saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do what, therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who would eat at your table. You could have destroyed us all, David, but you didn't. You were kind to me. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said, Why speak more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Before that, he had given it all to Ziba. What he's saying here is now, I can't figure this out. Don't have time for this. Here, y'all just divide it and move on. And Mephibosheth said, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And I believe he was genuine in that. I don't think there's any question that he was, based on the, the, the way that he had not taken care of himself while David was gone. If he wanted to be the king... That's not the way he would have acted. So then Barzilla the Gileadite, the guy who had, who had come once David had crossed the Jordan and come to Mahanaim, the guy who had provided all this lavish uh, supply for David and, and become his back channel of supply, came down and went across the, with the Jordan to escort David over the Jordan. He was an old man. He was 80 years old. And the king said, come with me and I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzilli, I mean, listen to this. This is hilarious. It's like the older I get, the more I can relate. How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? You know, I'm not going to be here all that long. I'll just stay where I am. And then he goes on, I'm this day 80 years old. Can I discern what's pleasant or not? 
I can't see anything, so I don't know whether it's good or bad. Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? I can't see, I can't taste, and I can't hear. Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? I don't need anything, David. Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here's your servant, Shemham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And so it's his son. And so he sends him on with the king. He goes with David, and David's going to take care of him. And then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. So they've crossed over back into the, the land proper. And the king went to Gilgal, and Shemham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. There's a huge retinue coming in back into the land, going to Jerusalem. And so the men of Israel then come, and they say, why? Because the men of Judah got there first, remember? Because they're David's people, and David's the one who asked them to come. Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, <coughs> stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? You know, why do they get all the honor to do this? It's not fair that we were left out of this, this great honor of bringing you back into the land. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king's our close relative. Why then were you angry over this matter? He, look, he's one of us. He's a man from Judah. Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? We haven't gotten anything from him for this. He's just our close relative. And there, the men of Israel respond, we have ten shares in the king. Remember, there's two half-tribes back on the other side, so there's ten plus Judah on on the side of the land. So they're claiming, ah, you know, we have ten times the claim on David you do. Um, and in David's also, we have more than you. We have ten shares in the king. There's ten tribes of us. Whoever the king is, we have ten shares in him. And then in David, this specific king, we also have more than you. Why did, did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? Interesting. Hey, we're innocent. We wanted David back. That's all we ever wanted. But the words of men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel, so they proved their case better. But, but everybody wants a part of it now. Everybody wants to be a part of this thing because the battle's over and it's clear David's the king. And so nobody wants to be seen as in opposition to the king. And, the, and they want to they plead their case. Ah, we care more about David than you do. We're, we're more, we are much more. We care about David. Everybody wants now to get the magnanimity of the king. They want to get out in front of this thing. And then in the gospel... Remember yesterday, Jesus had, had spoken of, uh, with, with the scribe who came and asked him, what's the most important commandment after he had completely just utterly demolished the, the chief priests and the elders and then the Herodians and the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. This, this scribe had come up, and so Jesus is still teaching in the temple. And he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. It's the same um, argument that Jesus makes in an earlier statement that, 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 that he is before Abraham was, I am. How could you possibly be older than Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. It's the same thing Jesus is saying here that he preceded David. So he's not really the son of David in the sense that, that he didn't come into being until after David. And his point is, is that David calls him my Lord, so he must have preceded David. He must have been alive prior to David 
if David's able to call on him. So, so Jesus ex- is, is speaking of his own pre-existence. And the people heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to wear, walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. They're, they're taking for vanity purposes the name of the Lord. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And that's what he says they're doing right here. They want all the recognition for it. They want you to see all this stuff and they want to be held up in places of honor in every single way. They, they want to be recognized. They want to be celebrities. But inside, they're horrible. They're horrible people. And because they take the Lord's name in vain for the purpose of vanity, they will receive the greater condemnation. Beware of them. Pay attention. Know what you're actually seeing. Don't judge by outward appearances. Judge by what's inside the way God does. I mean, it's he, he's pinging those scribes, the ones who are sort of judges of the law. Um, they're the ones who, who determine fine points of the law and teach. Beware those people, he says. And then he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. I mean, so she's got two half pennies and she's putting them in there. And and Jesus remarks to his disciples, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What she said was is that she pushed all her chips in and said, I'm all in on faith. I, I love God so much that I'm willing to give him everything that I have. I trust him so much. I'm willing to give him everything that I have. It, it's a remarkable statement. He has just warned about the scribes and, and the men that everybody honors, the celebrities of the day within the Jewish religious world. And here he, he marvels at this poor widow and says that she's greater than all of them. He's the she's the one that Jesus singles out for recognition in this scene. He's warned about this other stuff, and and now he steps in and says, "You want to know what's great? What's great is a person who who trusts God and loves God so much because she knows who He is, that He's great and He's good, that that they're willing to put everything in. They're willing to bet everything they have." on God, on His goodness, and on His greatness. That not only can He provide, that's His greatness, but He will, out of love. And that's the way we need to, to be willing to live. That's, that's the, the offer that He made to the rich young ruler was to be like that. Put everything you have in. Push it all in. If you really want to inherit eternal life, then show me that eternal life is the most important thing. Show me how much you love God and show me how much you trust God. Show me how much that the kingdom of God matters to you. And then I'll show you whether you'll inherit it or not. If you're willing to give up your earthly inheritance for it, then you understand and you truly desire the kingdom of God. If you don't, there's, there's nothing. You can walk away empty knowing what it required. And this woman is singled out for this great recognition by Jesus because she's put in everything she has. That's the way we're intended to live. We're intended to live with with no reserves. 
it's an important thing for us to see the claim of the gospel, the claim of Jesus is show me, right? It's, it's the show me state thing. It, it's show me what you believe. And the way you show what you believe is everything's at his disposal because you trust him, because you love him, because you know him. And that's an important thing. So in, in the Acts lesson, so we've got is, is some... Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. She was actually a daughter of Herod Agrippa. Herod, the one who dies in Acts 12 when he's speaking and extolling, and they say it's the voice of a God. Remember that guy who dies in that place? That's her father. Drusilla was the youngest child, and she's Jewish. And so he, he, he Felix, sends for Paul and hears him speak to hear him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. The backstory on all this is, is, is that Felix was a guy who had won his freedom. He had been sold as a slave to the mother of the emperor, Claudius. And he ultimately got his freedom. And then he and his brother, Pallas, became, P-A-L-L-A-S, by the way, became high officials in the reign of Claudius. That's how he ends up getting his job here. There was a problem in this area. And so Claudius says, okay, you're the procurator in that area. And so he sends him out there. And, And then he connects with another character from Acts, Simon Magus who was the magician, who, remember, he sees the disciples or the apostles laying hands on people and they're healed, and he comes to them after he's been, quote, converted, and says, I I want some of that. I'll I'll pay you for that. That's a magician's trick, right? So I'll pay you for that ability to do that. And, And then they denounce him there. Well, he and Felix are connected. That's the reason Felix knows a pretty accurate version of the way. But the other side of it is Simon Magus seduced for Felix, Drusilla, who had been married to another man. And so she leaves her husband and comes to be with Felix. So when Paul reasons about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, it's personal. Felix means happy. Mr. Happy here is confronted with the reality of sin and judgment by Paul. So that's why he says, come to me later. At the same time, he hoped money would be given to him because that's part of Felix's personality and his character as well. Horrible man. Um, So he sent for him often and conversed with him, hoping that he'd give him money and a bribe and he'd let him go. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Everybody wants to do the Jews a favor because they want to keep peace. But he's re- he, he, Felix, is relieved of his duty because they wanted him gone. They, the Jews, raised so much stink about Felix that he had to be replaced. And so Portius Festus wanted to do this solid for the Jews because of that. He wanted to keep the peace, and he wanted to make sure he didn't get run out from this cush job. So after he arrived, he goes up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged Festus, um, 
asking a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. I don't think they disclosed the last part of that. They just asked that he summon him to Jerusalem. He's already done him one favor, and they're asking for another one now. He said, look, Paul's being kept at Caesarea, and I'm intending to go there shortly, so let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. He stayed about eight or ten days, and then he goes on to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and offered, ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews came down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they couldn't prove. I mean, uh, we see this all the time today. It's the job of the media, I think, to bring many and serious charges that can't be proven against whoever the leader is. And it depends on which side of the aisle you're on, which media you listen to, and therefore what you end up believing. We would be far better off if we didn't have all that, to be honest with you. And so they can't prove any of this. And Paul argues, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Nobody can find me guilty under any law. And Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor again, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? That's what they had tried to get him to do, remember? That they had tried to say, hey, they asked a favor that, that he summoned him to Jerusalem. So he, he suggests that here, and Paul says, no. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried because they're accusing him of disturbing the peace. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself well know. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. I'm willing to pay the price. If I've committed any crime at all that's deserving of death, yep, I'm fine. But there's nothing to the charges against me. No one can give me up to them. I know what you're going to do, and I know what's going to happen if I go to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar because God had said Paul was going to go to Rome. So Festus confers with the council and says, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Paul knew how to work that system. He knew and was aware. He was wise as a serpent, so he knew what the plan was if he went back to Jerusalem. But he also knew God had said, you're going to Rome. And so he has to wait under Felix for two years before Portius Estes comes. And then he waits, and in, in this moment he sees. He understands what's going on all around him. And he says, here's what I want. I want to go to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. He will be my only judge in this matter. I'm not going to go down there for the kangaroo court. I've seen what happened there. I was part of that when it happened to Jesus and when it happened to Stephen. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be there. You, I'm not willing to die simply because they want to kill me. And so what we see in all these is people who, who understand the times. They figure out what's going on around them. And then they, they insert themselves into that situation in, in what they perceive to be the right way. The only person there who's not doing that is the poor widow who's not paying attention to all the things that are going on around her, is not intimidated or embarrassed to come in and offer a small offering. No. She makes her offering to God because she trusts only Him. This is between her and Him. Everything else can go hang itself. She trusts Him no matter what she sees around her, no matter her own poverty or anything else. She knows and loves the living God. That's truly how to be wise as serpent, innocent as God.